On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. Last time we were talking, Mike, we were at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth. We've come to Bethlehem, some distance actually. Yeah, it's, you know, nearly a hundred miles, which in the time of Jesus to cover that sort of distance uh, on foot would have, you know, been several days journey. And we're sort of in the cloisters of the Roman Catholic Church next to the Church of the Nativity. Yep, that's right. This church that was built here over the grotto, which from really earliest Christian times has been seen as the place where Mary gave birth to Jesus. Well, let's remind ourselves of how it's recorded in the Bible. Yeah, it's a good place to start, isn't it? So Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, let's hear what it says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the inn? That sounds like Jesus was born in a pub. <laughs> yes. Uh, and actually that particular version that I read from there uh, has had that expression changed in the most uh, recent editions to reflect more accurately what the New Testament actually says. Um, you know, and not for the first time, we're probably going to spoil some of the traditions, particularly to do with Christmas, because, of course, thousands of festivities around the world see children dressed up with Mary and Joseph arriving at the door, knocking at the door of the inn and being told, I'm sorry, there's no room here. But really, that's not what the Greek word in Luke's gospel means at all. It really means the guest room. There was no room for them in the family guest room. Now, why? Well, because of what we read at the beginning of that account. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, has sent out a decree that he wants a census of the entire Roman Empire. Why? Well, it was normally for two reasons. One, he wanted to know how many men he could call up for battle. Two, he wanted to know how much he could charge them for taxes and how much money he could raise. Now, Jews were exempt from having to fight for the Romans, but they certainly weren't exempt from taxes. So it's this decree that goes out that causes them to have to travel to their hometown, which for Joseph and Mary was right here where we are, Bethlehem. In fact, it looks like both of them were in the line of King David. And so they come back here to the family home to be registered for their taxes. 
And of course, the rest of the family's coming. And when they arrive at the simple home, which in those days may well just have been a cave, or sometimes a, a simple brick home was built in front of a cave, particularly for those who were poor, they found there was just no room for them. There was no room in the guest room. It was full already. Clearly, it had taken them some time to cover that 100 miles because Mary was pregnant, heavily pregnant, nearly ready to give birth. And so the only place that they can find for them is in another cave which was normally used for the animals. It was dry, it was clean, and they find a manger, which is a word meaning feeding trough. They find a feeding trough, put some nice clean straw into it, and there's the little crib for Jesus. So I'm afraid those stories of Mary and Joseph knocking wearily on the innkeeper's door and being turned away are probably really going to have to go. Here beside the Church of the Nativity, what does any visitor see now then, 2,000 years on? Well, as you approach the church from Manger Square, you come down a paved area to the wall of the church which looks like it's had a much taller wider entrance at one point because you can see the line of the stone lintels that were there and at various points in history for various reasons they've been lowered and lowered lowered on one occasion to stop people riding into the church on their horses <laughs> wouldn't have liked to have been doing the sermon at that point but now eventually it was lowered and lowered until now there's a very small entrance to come in really only wide enough for one person at a time perhaps no more than what four feet four foot six tall so it's called often the the door of humility because you have to bow down low doesn't matter who you are whether you're a prime minister or a president you have to bow down low to get into this church that was built over the site, recognized from earliest Christian times as being the birthplace of Jesus. Uh, you come in then to a much larger church that again goes back to early times. In fact, the first evidence of the cave here being venerated as the place of Christ's birth uh, is found in the writings of a guy called Justin Martyr who was writing about 160 AD, so very early indeed. And then in the 4th century, the Roman emperor became a Christian, Constantine. And suddenly, the situation was changed. Instead of being persecuted, Christians now had permission to put buildings up, which they'd never been able to do before. That's why there's this sudden explosion in the 4th century of buildings. And Constantine's mother, Queen Helena, was particularly fascinated by the Holy Land, came and visited it, and provided money for putting up structures in a lot of these places. And the first proper church building here was put up in 326 at, at her instigation, a, a simple octagonal church. Um, that was rebuilt in AD 530 by the Emperor Justinian. And it's that structure that still survives to today, the one that we've just walked into. I find that incredible, it's 1500 years old. A large hall type area, pillars on either side. The floor is partly covered by wooden panels that can be lifted up to reveal original mosaics from that period, we've just seen some. And then as you go forward 
There's an area which is now controlled by the Greek Orthodox Church. So what we find there are lots of icons, lots of oil lamps hanging down from the ceiling. Just to the right of that is an area that's controlled by the Arminians. And then down below, you go down steps that curve around and into the cave grotto, where there are two things to be seen. On the one side, a 14-pointed silver star that's supposed to mark the very point where Mary gave birth, and on the other side, a stone manger. And then next to that whole church, this more modern Roman Catholic church standing here, though all three of those denominations, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenians, and the Roman Catholic, control what happens down there in what's called the grotto. You said a 14-pointed star, marking the place where Mary gave birth to Jesus. Why 14? Because when Matthew gives his account of the birth of Jesus, he begins it by showing us that Jesus really does fulfil the promises of the Old Testament. And so he begins with what, frankly, for most of us today is, is hard work, a bit boring if we're honest. It's a genealogy. But in that genealogy, he is showing how Jesus has the right to fulfill these messianic promises because of his descent from Abraham and from David. And he lists the generations in blocks of 14 generations. So he does from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus being born. And he picks out 14 key generations in each of those three blocks. So it's a way of saying in artistic form, it was here at this point that the word was made flesh, became a real human being, as we saw in our previous episode, in order to fulfill these promises that stretched all the way back to Abraham. Here is no new story. Here is the climax and the fulfillment of the story that started all those years ago. You mentioned the Greek Orthodox Church that you see as you walk into the main church with its gold and its icons and its paintings. Does anything sort of strike you about that in particular? One of the things that's pretty common in Greek Orthodox churches is at the front of the church there is a screen with doors into which the ordinary folk can't go. You and I certainly couldn't go, not even members of the Greek Orthodox Church can go. And it's behind that screen, behind closed doors, that the priests offer up the Eucharist. But it's seen as so holy that it can't be seen. Now, that's very different from most Christian traditions where, whether it's one that's very formal or one that's very informal, it's still very much something that's seen. So you see a screen that's not letting you see what's going on behind. And on that screen, you normally get uh, four icons. Just to the right of the door, there's an icon of what's called Christ Pantocrator, Christ the ruler of the whole world, holding his right hand up with his fingers positioned in a particular way and holding a Bible with the Greek letters Alpha and Omega beginning and end on it. And then just to the left of the door, you get a picture, usually, of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. To the right, extreme right, 
you find a picture of, yeah, this one's a bit gruesome, John the Baptist holding his own head. And then to the far left, you get a picture that tells you about what's the story that this particular church is representing. And so as we look at that one in this church, what we see is the birth story reproduced. And wherever you go, that's what you always get in a Greek Orthodox church. But on the left-hand side, it will always be the one that's slightly different, telling you the story behind this church and why it's here. And you said just opposite of the 14-pointed star is a rock manger. Yeah, yeah, built of stone, because that's what they used to be built of. Again, we tend to think, don't we, in our sort of modern nativity stories of it being a a manger made out of wood. It's got two crossed legs and the planks of wood across with the straw sticking out. But actually, they found loads of mangers from that time. And nearly all of them are made of stone. Why? Because they last longer. And it was simply a bit like a a water trough uh, that we sometimes find in English towns and villages. Uh, And that's opposite now. It's been elaborated a bit and it's got something built over it and candles lit inside and so on. Whether it was the actual manger, of course, remains debatable. But there's no doubt that the manger that Jesus was laid in would have been very, very much like that. So this is a very sacred place, and I can tell from the queues of tourists and visitors and pilgrims that are wanting to go down into that grotto that they're taking their time to actually remember what this place marks. You know, particularly at the place where Jesus' human life begins and where he ends, there's a great deal of Christian devotion expressed. Now, you know, listeners who will be listening to our programme will come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some who, to be honest, will not have much time for this sort of stuff. Others for whom this is very, very important. But there's no doubt that for everyone who comes here, it's moving. I've been bringing groups of people to visit Israel for a number of years now. And even for those for whom smells and bells and tradition are really unimportant, they still find it moving to be at a spot, even if it wasn't the very place, commemorates it, and it was close to here. For others, of course, it's really, really very special. And just as we walked through now, we saw some, didn't we, stretching out into that low cave area because it's only a couple of feet high, and so they have to get right down and stretch out into it in order to touch or to kiss that 14-pointed star. Now, that might not be some of our traditions, but what they're doing is saying, hey, this place was really special to me, Lord, in the story of Jesus coming to be my saviour. And when you read from the Bible, there's not a lot of detail, to be honest, is there? Do you know what, David, it's funny you should say that, because even as I was reading it, that very thought flashed through my mind, how simple it is. Do you know what? When it comes to the cross, it's just as simple. And while movies have been made of what happened at the cross and a lot made of the suffering and what the soldiers did, it's interesting, when it comes to the crucifixion, as we'll see in a future episode, it simply says, and they crucified him. Full stop. And for me, you know, both of these stories at the beginning and the end really add to the authenticity. Because if you were making this up, 
Frankly, I think I could have made a better story up than this for what happened when God came into the world, when, as John puts it, the word became flesh. So it is very, very simple indeed. It does not have the fanfares and the razzmatazz that, you know, a ruler today or a celebrity today might have. You know, if they had a baby, you know, they'd probably be on the phone to their agent to get the right magazines around, to get photographs, you know, and, and things like this. Incredibly simple, isn't it? But for me, the simplicity is something that authenticates it, because if you were making it up, you'd have added a lot more in. You could have made a lot more of this. And yet here is the simple truth that in the fullness of time, the word became flesh and Jesus was born in the most humble of situations, the king of glory, the one who'd brought everything into being along with his father and the Holy Spirit at a point in human history, humbles himself, not just to be conceived in Mary's womb and to grow there, but now to be laid in a manger. And at a time when it seems to be the Roman emperor was in control. And yet, of course, what lies behind that, the point of Luke saying that is, here might be Caesar Augustus thinking that he is the ruler of the world and can call everyone to jump when he snaps his fingers. But here, right under his nose, a king is being born whose kingdom will endure, whereas Caesar Augustus's will pass like everyone else's. What a contrast, right under his nose. So it is a very simple story, and yet it's a very powerful story. It's a very undermining story. When you're here in Bethlehem and reading these verses from the Bible, does it sort of take on a, a new meaning? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, the great thing about the Word of God, the Bible, is... You can read it anywhere, in any time, in any place, in any language, and it can be powerful if you let God speak to you. So that's the first thing I need to say. But I do have to say, yeah, it, it does come home to you that it really happened. You know, it happened here. It happened really close to where you and I are standing now. And it brings home, I think, something of the reality of it. And as we go on with this journey throughout the Promised Land, you know, we're going to hit places again and again where the setting will help us with the meaning. I mean, here we are in Bethlehem. Um, you know, today Bethlehem is a hustling, bustling town that it is a nightmare to get through uh, by car or taxi or walking or anything else. Um, but really, it's not, were it not for the birth of Jesus, frankly, this town wouldn't be anything. Well, in some ways, the, the town, the city of Bethlehem in those days really wasn't that much. I mean, it was the place where shepherds that we'll look at in a future episode uh, tended their sheep to bring them up to the temple in Jerusalem, and that was very important. But frankly, the only reason this place was important was because it had been the birthplace of David, Israel's greatest king, the king to whom God had promised that you will never fail to have a king on the throne and your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And of course, as Jesus is born as a son, a descendant of David, 
the reality of that starting to happen comes home. So I think for me, coming to Bethlehem and reading this story here brings home at one level what an obscure place. And yet, Lord, as so often in the Bible, you will often use the most obscure places and the most obscure people to bring about your purposes. And I, I think that's what stands out to me as we come here. It fulfilled scriptures. But, you know, in New Testament times, it was a bit of a backwater, really. Yet here we are, and it really happened. And the baby that was born quite close to where we're standing will be someone who would grow up and change the world. Wow. So if you were a betting man, you wouldn't have put money on Jesus being born in Bethlehem? Yes and no. Um, it depends whether I was a betting man who'd read my Bible or not. Because, of course, humanly speaking, yeah, there was, not, there was nothing here that would mark this out. Just like Nazareth, as we'll see in a future episode. You know, when some of the first disciples said they found the Messiah and he came from Nazareth, the response of one of the others was, Nazareth? You know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Because it wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. So at one level, you wouldn't have put your money on him being born here. But of course, if you'd read your scriptures, you would have known that prophets, Micah in particular, in chapter 5, had promised that it would be in Bethlehem that Messiah would be born. So for those who knew their scriptures, yeah, it's not surprising at all that this was the place, obscure though it was, because it was the place that God had promised. You said that the actual Bible text does make this event, this momentous event, sound slightly matter-of-fact. Do you feel as if it ought to be perhaps printed in capital letters in the Bible? <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm going to do a yes and no to you, David. I'd be a bit reluctant to print it in capital letters because it would make it out to be that this part of God's word was more important than any other part of God's word which is why I tend to dislike red-letter Bibles that mark out the words of Jesus, because it's saying, in effect, this is more important than the other stuff. So this bit shouldn't be in capital letters because it's more important than all the rest of the Bible. But I hear the heart behind the question you're asking. At one level, yes, this is, wow, this is angels crying aloud stuff. And, of course, there'll be plenty of angels around in this Christmas event story, won't they? So... It's, it's the most significant event in many ways in human history. It's the moment when God comes into the world. We looked in our previous episode at that whole mystery of the incarnation, how the word became flesh. So at that level, it ought to be shouted out loud. Hey, wake up, everybody. God has come into this world. And yet, how has God come? so humbly you know when either big politicians or famous actors or singers visit places these days they sort of they expect their security to go ahead don't they there might be cordons so that people can't get close and so on and they expect to be treated in a way that honors that they are very very important here is god coming into the world in the most quiet, the most obscure way possible, almost hidden away, lying in a manger. 
And this will be a theme that will come out again and again as we read the Bible story. Jesus comes in humility. He comes as the servant. That servant that Isaiah had spoken about so many times, uh, particularly in the later chapters of his book. So capital letters, yes, because God is coming and yet God is coming so quietly, so humbly, so different to the, the great and the good of the world, both in our time and in this time. Now we're here, not in December, but I should imagine Christmas in Bethlehem must be quite amazing. Oh yes, the whole square out here, manger square, uh, is completely lit up and there are loads of Christmas trees that are donated from around the world. I mean, even now as we came in, I don't know if you noticed, but there are some lights left up there permanently covering the whole square. Uh, but at Christmas time, this is very special and Christians from all kinds of traditions come here to celebrate this sort of key event in Christian life. And yeah, Christmas is a, a great time to rejoice at the coming of Jesus. But for many Christians, coming here and celebrating here is very special indeed. What would you say to somebody who says, well, Christ is just for Christmas? Well, I would say to them, have you ever read one of the stories of Jesus? Have you ever read one of the Gospels? Because what I want to challenge you to do if that's what you think, that Jesus just belongs at Christmas or Jesus just belongs on a Sunday, is go on, read one of the Gospels, I dare you. Read maybe Luke's Gospel to get you going and read it and see what this person is really like and see what a difference he makes to ordinary people's lives. And the great thing is, Jesus was not only doing it then, he still does that today. As we reach out to him, as we say, Jesus, I recognize that you're God's son come into this world. I recognize you came not just to teach me how to live and show me how to live, but you actually died on the cross in my place. Please forgive where I've got it wrong. Forgive my sins and come and be my Lord and Savior and help me now to follow you, take me on a journey of excitement and adventure following you and see how life changes. So give it a go. I just happened to read this morning in a psalm in my own daily Bible reading a verse that said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, there's my challenge to anyone who thinks that Christ might just be for Christmas. Maybe even a figure who is not real, but it's been mythologized over the years, is taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, that scripture saying, go on, try it for yourself and see. And that would be my challenge to people. And if as people go on to listen to this series, if they've never taken that step of becoming a follower of Jesus, go on. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Give it a go. Try it. Read the Bible for yourself. Read one of the gospel stories of Jesus. And give it a go. And see what a difference this Jesus who was born so close to where we are standing now. Give it a go and see what a difference he can make. Well, Mike, 
I'm just going to ask you to pray for us now then. Lord Jesus, in this place where we commemorate your birth, we remember that you came not with great pomp and ceremony, but so quietly, so humbly. Teach us both to be grateful and responsive to you and to seek to follow that path of humility in how we live our own lives. And Lord, for any who don't yet know you, as they join us on this journey through the Holy Land, following your life, may they taste and see that you're good for themselves and come to faith in you and find life transformed. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises. <laughs> <laughs>